Coming up on Tech Nation, yesterday's technology is all in play for today's challenges. David Ludvigsen from Nanomics talks about making their handheld testing device COVID-19 ready. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft sees the rise of the maker movement, especially now with everyone at home. And the hours it takes to infuse IV drugs, Helen Torley from Halozyme talks about their efforts to move that down to minutes. First up, breast cancer in women and multiple myeloma. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In 2010, I spoke with then Washington Post journalist Chunker Vidantam about his book, The Hidden Brain, how our unconscious minds elect presidents, control markets, wage wars, and save our lives. In fact, Chunker coined the term the hidden brain. So I told him, I don't know if you've noticed, but none of my brain is showing. (laughs) Good point, Morris. So the hidden brain is a metaphor. It's not meant to be a literal term, as in literally the part of the brain that's hidden, but it's a metaphor that describes a range of unconscious influences that affect people in their everyday lives. And I've used the term analogously with uh, the selfish gene, for example. It's not as if genes actually actively are selfish or they are jumping up saying, me first, me first. And in much the same way, the hidden brain is not necessarily physically hidden, but it's about the hiddenness of the brain, if you will. So what's conscious is certainly known to us. It's those unconscious things that you're really talking about that have a vast impact on our lives personally and collectively. Correct. That's right. And I'm using the term unconscious a little differently than I think Freud would, which is why I also coined it, decided to coin a new term, because it's not really talking about the unconscious as this seething mass of impulses driven by sex and our parental upbringing and all of these complicated things in our psyche. I I got really excited there for a little bit. It's, It's in many ways the hidden brain that I'm writing about about and that has been researched the last 10 or 15 years is rather mundane. Uh, and the processes are actually rather mundane, but they turn out to have dramatically powerful implications and impacts in our everyday lives. Now, tell us some of the things that we do unconsciously that we're not aware of. Well, in some ways, the question should be turned around. Uh, and it sounds remarkable, but I think actually the better question to ask is tell me the things that you do consciously. Because okay, it seems that's as- good. Yeah. <laughs> that, we actually know about that. So. It, it seems as if almost everything that we do is conscious. But the more scientists have peeked into the brain and the workings of the brain, the more and more they find that much of what we think is conscious is actually driven by unconscious processes of one kind or the other. And many scientists have actually gotten to the point where they've asked themselves not so much why we have an unconscious mind, but why it is we have a conscious mind, given that the unconscious seems to be so sophisticated and able to do everything from, you know, judge, you know, whether our romantic partners are right for us to whether we should invest in a stock to what we should do when a fire alarm goes off to our moral judgment. So the unconscious is really a sophisticated creature and it affects us. It's ubiquitous. But wait a minute. Everything you listed there, a lot of people think they choose with their conscious mind. Yes, I know. And I, I do too. And I still feel that way after I wrote and report this book. But it turns out that it's not true. We feel that we are making conscious decisions. We feel we're thinking through things carefully and intentionally. But it turns out that 
in much of our lives, we are swayed or tugged by these subtle influences that we're not aware of. And the most devilish thing about these influences is that once we have been manipulated, we somehow rationalize to ourselves that we're the ones who came up with it, that our conscious minds are the ones who came up with these behaviors and decisions. Well, we all know we make terrible decisions when we're angry, but it didn't occur to me we might be biased in our decisions when we're feeling comfortable or at peace or or anything that, you know, joy, actually that impacts our decisions and takes away from some sort of rational deduction of what we ought to do. Yes. So I think in much of our lives, these emotions certainly play a huge role in how we think about things. There has been research, for example, that shows that people make more aggressive stock investments when it's sunny outside than when it's cloudy outside. And of course, it makes no sense to invest in stocks depending on the weather because the weather is not a useful predictor of where the stock market is going. Especially with climate disruption (laughs) shooting down our necks here. Exactly. But it's what scientists call in some ways a heuristic. People are using sort of a cue about the weather as an indicator about something else that is unrelated to the weather. And because in our everyday lives, we have all these different factors kicking around at the same time. We have our perception of the weather, how we are feeling that morning, whether our dog is healthy or not, and how our children are behaving, and how we have to judge whether to invest in one stock or the other. And if we read our horoscope. And if we read our horoscope that morning, (laughs) indeed. And so all these things are happening simultaneously. And so we feel that we can focus in on any one domain and think about it carefully, but we can't because all these other things are bleeding into it at the same time and tugging us subtly in one direction or the other. Shortly after this 2010 interview, Chunker Vidantam joined NPR. His journalism focuses on human behavior and the social sciences. You can hear him every week on the podcast, you guessed it, The Hidden Brain at npr.org. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, technology does what technology does best, pivot. David Ludvigson, the president and CEO of Nanomics, joins me to talk about efforts to make their 15-minute handheld testing device COVID-19 ready. BARDA, the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority of Health and Human Services, has issued them a grant to do just that. Then Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us how the maker movement has responded to COVID-19. And Helen Torley from Halozyme talks about their work, shortening the time to take IV drugs for breast cancer in women and multiple myeloma. And now, David Ludvigson. Well, David, welcome to Biotech Nation. Well, thank you, Moira. I'm very happy to be here and excited to talk to you. Here we are in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, You build biomedical devices at Nanomics, and you've received a government grant from BARDA, B-A-R-D-A. I've never heard of BARDA. What is it? BARDA is the uh, Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority within uh, Health and Human Services. So they're looking to do detection of infectious disease, and we know that the federal government is looking to do all kinds of things to do COVID-19 testing. But what is special about what you're doing? 
Well, BARDA has now focused almost 100% on the coronavirus and the coronavirus uh, testing situation. So what we're doing is taking our system that we have, a portable uh, test system, and we are you know, building it now to be able to test the coronavirus in, in patients. Since it's only recently that we've learned about this coronavirus, you couldn't have had a device that measured it. What devices or device do you do at Nanomics that would be relevant here? So Nanomics has developed a portable testing system. So it's comprised of a handheld device that's operated via a screen, and then there's a consumable part that goes into it. So you put the patient sample into the consumable, you put the consumable into the instrument, you go through a couple of little things on the screen of the instrument, you press go, and then you get an answer for it. So what we had very interestingly was this whole system set up. So we have the instrument and we have all of the packaging for the consumable. And that has been developed by Nanomics initially around the idea of doing uh, screening for sepsis and infectious diseases. So we saw the development of the coronavirus and how it was beginning to, you know, to start to, to move outside of China. And we thought that it would be um, something that we could do to adapt our system to the biology necessary to detect the coronavirus. And I would point out to you that in 2014, when we were initially prototyping our technology, we actually did a similar project around the Ebola uh, crisis in, in, in Africa. And we built then a system working with Tulane University that would test Ebola, dengue, and loss of fever, three um, infections that are, that are associated with that area of the world. They all look the same to a practitioner, a health practitioner. And so by having those three, the idea was that you'd be able to to distinguish a dengue-positive person from an Ebola person. Those are two people you don't want to put in the same room, right? And so we did it in about eight weeks' time, and uh, it was tested in Sierra Leone. It was successful. And so out of that, we learned that our system is very good for virus and virus detection and discrimination of different kinds of viruses. The other thing um, that we learned was that you want to do these kinds of products for what end up being large markets. The Ebola uh, virus was very well contained, and it, it went away, thankfully. It went away very quickly. And so, there so wasn't, did your market. Yeah, there, there you go. So there's no market. Now, we don't have to worry about that, I don't think, with COVID. I think this COVID-19 um, is going to require literally hundreds of millions of tests and, and specifically tests around antibodies and determining whether people have had this infection and have recovered or whether they're still susceptible to, uh, to infection by, you know, a carrier. There's so many questions to ask here. In the case that you were telling us about, about dengue fever and Ebola, people are going in right now and saying, I have all these symptoms. Uh, I'm afraid I have the coronavirus. And it turns out they're having the flu. Can you distinguish between the flu and coronavirus? 
We can. Um, we're building two different tests here. The first one of which tests antigens, which are present very early in the stage of a coronavirus infection. And at that same time, we can distinguish whether it's a coronavirus antigen or whether it's a, a common flu antigen. In our second test, um, which is to look at the antibody uh, levels, the presence or absence of antibodies to COVID-19, uh, we're also testing for other coronaviruses. So there are four other coronaviruses that exist, which are, you know, much less virulent than is COVID-19. And so if somebody has that versus COVID-19, we can say, hey, it's not COVID-19, it's a different coronavirus. And then that would go down a, a, a different uh, path of, uh, uh, you know, healthcare resolution. Well, this speaks directly to what, how you treat a patient. Yes, Information sure. is is king here. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the other thing that's interesting on this, I in fact, I found this really interesting. I talked to a person the other day who said, "I was certain that I had, you know, coronavirus, COVID nineteen, and I went and got tested. It took eight days to get an answer, uh, and it came back and said that I wasn't, uh, uh, that I wasn't positive for coronavirus. Is it possible that?" I had coronavirus and I've recovered and I can't and and they can't tell. And the answer to that is yeah, that's very real. So we have PCR tests, which are the molecular tests that that are sort of the the go to staple these days for early detection. Those molecular tests are good in the early phase of detection because they look at the viral RNA, which is circulating in, 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 in a person. So you've got the DNA that you have, and then you have an RNA. You have which an RNA, which is the viral re replication. There you go. Right. And, and uh, you know, and it's in COVID-19, it's present in, uh, in nasal and, and throat areas. And so the sample for that, you take a swab. And then, and then what PCR does is it takes and says, I know what the sequence of the RNA should look like. Is there a matching sequence in this RNA? If, it, if there's a match, then that's a positive, and you know the person's in, infected. Um, but that's only early but, in right. the infection disease process. Right, because what happens then is as the infection begins to take hold, the amount of RNA actually declines, and the the body goes through what is referred to as seroconversion, where you're actually converting then to building antibodies to the disease. Your immune system kicks in, and you're beginning to try to fight, you know, the virus. And so, if you test somebody on a PCR test and you get them after seroconversion, you're you're not going to see anything, and, and so that's why. And then zero conversion takes how many days? Uh, you know, in this, it's it's I th that we think we think it's point. you know seven to ten days after infection. Um, but now remember, you don't know exactly when infection begins. Um, a lot of people are asymptomatic; they don't ever show signs of the disease, but yet they have it. So it's a really tricky problem, and that's why. What we talk to people about is the need to do both. You need to test early using the PCR systems. They have very high levels of sensitivity for early disease. But then you also have to come back and test, is the immune system responding here? The antibodies. Yeah, the antibodies. That's right. And so by doing that, 
we think, you, you know, we can cover the entire life cycle of the virus, if you think about it, you know, from from infection, um, you know, the RNA uh, duplication, seroconversion to then building antibodies and 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 in theory being, um, you know, re- resilient against uh, uh, reinfection. And from the human's point of view, you're just doing one test to them. I mean, you go to the doctor for an annual or whenever you go for a physical and they take some blood from you and then you uh, you have 150 things that come out on this thing. Oh, yeah. As no, far that's, as you're concerned, that... it, was, it was one thing, but a lot of tests came out. Right. In your case, do each of those need a separate test from the user perspective? We, we are doing two different tests, so one of which tests a nasal uh, swab and looks for antigens, which is the first immune system response. Um, And then the second test that we're doing just looks at antibodies. And we'll tell you, it looks at at IgG and IgM, two two measures of of antibody titers uh, in a person. And that'll tell you whether or not you've built up antibodies to to COVID-19. And that comes from the blood. And that comes from the blood, right? So the first one, you need a nasal swab, need to figure out how to, to, to process that. The second one comes from a blood sample. That blood sample could be a finger stick sample. It could be um, phlebotomy, you know, and blood draw like you get when you, you know, have your annual, you know, health physical. There are some really neat new um, ways of people who've got little like leech things that you put on your your shoulder and it uses micro needles to suck out a little bit of capillary blood. That's for people who don't like the pain of being you know stuck with the you know with the uh, with the lancet reaction. So there's a number of different ways of gathering um, uh, the blood sample. Now your friend had to wait, or the person that you spoke mm-hmm. with had to wait eight days. That's not good. No, waiting eight days, you know, from a patient management standpoint, what do you do? Do you say, well, I think this person may be COVID positive and therefore I need to isolate them while I wait for the answer? Um, or do you at risk leave them in the population? It makes for a very difficult um in a patient management situation, now we're seeing those lead times are coming down as more labs are getting involved. But the PCR process itself today is dominated by very expensive machines that are in a limited number of very specialized laboratories that require highly trained individuals. And so the process itself is one that's going to be time consuming. You take the swab, you put it in a transport medium, you package it up, you send it off to the lab, the lab unbundles it, they put it onto the system, they wait until they probably have a you know a very large number, they run a batch of those, you get the answer, then you have to find the you know bring the answer back to the patient that you know today um, I think some of the reference labs are getting that now down to one to two days. Um, there are a couple of systems out now that you know, thankfully are doing very rapid uh, PCR tests using either, you know, rapid PCR or an isothermal amplification process. And they're able to get answers quicker than that, but they're very limited in terms of the number of those systems and the throughput is is, is fairly limited. So we're still in a process where people are going to have to wait. So go through a drive-in testing system and what do you get? You get a swab, 
Okay. You get an, an ID number and in a couple of days you'll get, you know, an email, an email uh, or a phone call saying, here's what your, uh, what your answer was. It's a, uh, it, I think people are absolutely heroic in what they're doing, but the tools that we have are are just you know, they don't lend themselves easily to this kind of pandemic situation. What you find in what we have, which is a point of care test, Florida had to be interested in you for a reason. Yeah, exactly, and <laughs> and it's the whole idea of being able to take a sample, process it right then and there. So you can run our system if you're in a drive-through. You could take the sample. You could run the system right in the in the drive-through tent. Okay, if you're in the home for an elderly, you know you could just take the pay. You could take the patient. You could take the sample. You could run it right then. You don't have to send it off to a lab. So you can get that, run that test, and our test runs uh, in less than 15 minutes, and you get an answer while you're there, and then you know what to do with the uh, with the patient. The other interesting thing about our approach is is that it's mobile. So it was built originally with a design point to be um, installed in um, ambulances and used by paramedics and first responders. So it's very robust and rugged, and it's designed to be used in lots of different environments and shake, rattle, and roll all you want, and you're still going to get uh, get an answer. So. Um, so you could actually go in as a first responder, quickly do the test, wait 15 minutes if they could wait, and then say, wait a minute, we're not equipped to take this patient. Correct. So we could have to bring somebody else or some other group in to take this patient, or we're ready to go, or we will take different measures mm-hmm. now that we know. Sure. Um, you know, I I had an email. We, we, we had a, a little TV blurb about nanomics um, a few days ago. And I got an email from a San Francisco-based dentist who said, can I buy your system? Because the only way I go back to work is that I know the patient who sits down in my dental chair is free of virus. Otherwise, it's too dangerous for me to work on them. We are at, you know, the highest, you know, level of exposure. You know, so there's just tons and tons of these, you know, applications of, of people who need to know what the status is of the person who's around them. And, and you know, it's really going to become part, Moira, it's going to be really come part of how do we find our way back to some new normal, right? Um, you're going to have to know who has had the disease, who has it, who's still at risk, you know, you and I joke. And before. how long the how long the antibodies will be good for? Well, that's yeah, that's uh, that's another uh, really we really don't know important a lot of stuff here. Really important uh, as well. So, um, I was on a um, a conference call um, um, early yesterday with a uh, virologist from Johns Hopkins, and she indicated that she thinks because of this uncertainty about how long the antibodies last, that people will have to be tested for, you know, a numerous times to see what the patterns are in these antibodies and how effective they are. So, like I say, this is a um, a requirement when we look at it and when BARDA looks at it, this is a requirement that's going to be hundreds of millions of tests. There have to be 
numerous, many vendors and suppliers supplying these tests to be able to get this done. And you can't have hundreds of millions of people stacked up waiting for, you know, a couple of days to get an answer. It's just not, not tenable. Now, what has BARDA tasked you to do and in what time frame? Our contract with BARDA says that we will deliver two working test cartridges, one of which tests the antigen, the other of which tests the antibody, and that we will submit that to the FDA for uh, EUA, emergency use authorization, which is FDA's current abbreviated review process for for new tests. We plan to do that um, within eight weeks. Okay, so we're talking May? You are talking end of May, and my goal is to have a usable test product in uh in in hands of, of of healthcare providers in June and then to to very rapidly ramp our our supply and you know production capacity so that we can be you know providing hundreds of thousands of these test kits. Now when you say cartridge you're talking about that which you put the sample in and load onto your detector. Right. That's right. correct. It's the so disposable. The detector's still fine. It's yeah. the it's a new cartridge to address this condition. Right. The instrument just sits there and it and it runs and it runs and just waits for you to put in that patient sample, press go, and you get the answer. We get the answer by the way. It's you know, we're 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 kind of trying to move into the new world with uh, with diagnostic capabilities. So we do Bluetooth answers to uh uh you know to a, to an Android or to uh to an you know an Apple iPhone if you, if you want it uh, that way too. Uh if you just asked any of us a couple of weeks ago and we were asking about a test, a fast test, we would have said, you know, one test. You know, and we're getting the sense that we've got to be constantly testing. We may be testing for things for the rest of our lives constantly. You know, this is a whole different thing. My next question is actually slightly different. I know this device is used to detect sepsis. Uh, However, isn't sepsis usually for bacteria? Yes, that's correct. Uh I think about 80% of, of sepsis cases are, are bacterial-based uh, infections. So we Which built takes a, over your system and eventually yeah, your it's, organs. It's, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's just amazing to me how few people understand sepsis. It's just it's a very, very tough disease to manage, and it has a very high fatality rate. One of the keys in managing a patient in sepsis is getting on top of the disease immediately. So time is really of essence in, in screening and, and beginning treatment of these individuals. So we looked at that, and it's perfect for our, our system. Our system is accurate, is very rapid. Our sepsis test runs in 11 minutes, um, and it can be done in a number of different locations, as I said earlier. So community-acquired versus hospital-acquired sepsis is a, is a real issue. So the goal is determine if somebody has the, you know, a, a sepsis-based infection as early as you possibly can and then get them onto a, a sepsis protocol. So we did that, and, and we actually, the, the system tests three different markers, um, uh, lactate, which is, is, shows that you have enough mm, 
tissue perfusion that your system's working and getting, you know, liquids to your extremities. Uh, C-reactive protein, uh, which which looks at, at this, the, the level of inflammation in a body. And then procalcitonin, which is a measure of how much bacterial infection load is there in your, your blood. So that provides us then with a foundation. It provides us with a uh, an instrument that can can operate a cartridge, and it provides us with the physical attributes of the cartridge. So what we do now is we say, let's adapt that to COVID-19. You've been listening to David Ludvigson, president and CEO of Nanomics. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available on NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft talks about the newly energized maker movement for COVID-19. And Helen Torley from Hillazyme talks about much quicker drug delivery for breast cancer in women and multiple myeloma. Stay with us. Listening to Tech Nation, I'm speaking with David Ludvigsen, President and CEO of Nanomics. We've been talking about switching their small handheld diagnostic device over to test for COVID 19. So we are now figuring out what is the biology associated with COVID 19, which biomarkers or which antibodies can let you detect that COVID 19 is present. Once we determine that, then we just take robotically and we basically print that biology onto our electronic sensor. We print a COVID nineteen uh, reagent, right? So okay, it so all goes on. Unpack this. Yeah, it it's all goes like on the same reagent. Okay. Yeah. So you're printing, and people are now familiar with three D printing. It's mm. got all kinds of materials. You can print anything on anything. And a reagent. Now, a reagent, let's start with that. A reagent is important in any diagnostic. What does a reagent do? 
Well, a reagent is, you know, we think about it in the terms of an immunoassay. So it has the identity, the capture identity of the marker that you're looking for in the blood. So it's a sort of the second half of a... Of, It'll of, attract it if it's there. Yeah, it attracts it if it's there. And then the second reagent is the reporter reagent, which is which marries up to, you know, the, the, the capture agent. So they're really two like halves. Like an Oreo cookie. Yeah, like an Oreo. That's, exactly, <laughs> gotcha. that's a good way of thinking about it, right? <laughs> gotcha. If you yeah. got an Oreo cookie, you got what you were looking for. Right. And so we use very, very small amounts of those, and we actually put them down onto a sensor, which is included in the... Uh, in the cartridge, uh, in the, in not the cartridge. in the holder, in the cartridge, because it has to all be separate right. and kept a whole to itself where you would be moving the samples from one to another. You have to keep that all separate. Right. And, um, and, and, and so all of the liquids stay in the cartridge. And all of the electronics and pneumatics stay in the instrument. And the two don't ever intermingle. So the interface... If you think about it, the cartridge comes in, it makes an electronic interface, and then there's a there's a, a, a small spot on the cartridge which links up with a with a system in the reader that is basically vacuum or pressure. And so we use we use vacuum or pressure, we turn on and off in order to manipulate the patient sample through the test cartridge and to do the actual testing. So to get those a, reagents to flow to where the sample is right. to see if you get an Oreo cookie. Right. I'm sure I'll get mail about that. Yeah, email. I'm sure. I'm All sure we both mail. will. I, but you know, it's good, though. I'm getting it with the Oreo cookie. <laughs> this um, is good. So the, all that yeah. stuff, all, anything organic is really inside the cartridge. Right. And it's a biohazard disposable so it gets tossed in the red bag you don't want you don't want to take it home as no a you don't want to take it home we yeah. we found that to be especially the case when we were dealing with ebola um we didn't want to bring those home and in fact it's kind of funny we we uh the, the with the prototype instruments that we used for that we told uh, tulane it's okay you can keep them we don't want them we back. don't want them back <laughs> just send them back we don't want them exactly now, People listening are thinking, you know, either there are 2,000 people working or there's like you and your buddy working at a, in a lab. Yeah. How many people are at Nanomics? Well, we have a great team. Um, we have about 20 people uh, in the company, sometimes 22, 23. Um, and about half of those today are working from home because we have followed the, you know, the state guidelines and the local guidelines. So anybody who can work from home is working from home. And about half of those are working in, in the lab. Um, so we're doing right now the development of these assays. We're doing uh, production of the the pieces that we need in order to, you know, to do the testing. But we're supported by, you know, a very large uh, supply chain, which, you know, supplies many of the components. So we're not manufacturing all the components ourselves. We have a, you know, we have, we have good uh, high quality volume vendors who produce our sensors. And, and they're who, still at work. Yeah. And they are at work. Yes. We, I, I regularly sign letters saying that this is an, an, an essential business and you should, you should continue to work. So they're all, they're all, um, they're all continuing to work. Um, but we have good, we have good solid vendors behind us. I would say, you know, as we think about our challenges, I'm very confident that our team will make the assays work. 
the next challenge and where I'm spending most of my time these days is on how do I scale this to make hundreds of thousands of these tests? Because the market demand is going to be really significant. And and so we're really working today. That's the next piece of the of the puzzle for us. And that's where we're really pushing today. Well, you didn't know this was coming when it was coming. What did it interrupt when it showed up? <laughs> well, that's kind of a funny story, too, because we were we were rolling out our sepsis test. The sepsis test is is CE marked, which means it's sort of like the FDA approval equivalent in in Europe and in other countries that recognize the CE mark. Um, so we had CE marked the product. It's filed with the FDA now. It's going through the review process. But we had started up working on distribution of the sepsis test in Europe. And in fact, we had our th- first three customer installations scheduled for the first week of April in Italy. Obviously, with the situation in Italy, that's all been put on the uh, the back burner. So we pivoted this company from being focused on driving a sepsis product into the market to now rallying around the need for rapid decentralized testing of of the of the coronavirus and our our group has done a a phenomenal job in terms of making that shift and moving forward we benefit from the fact that our system is the same physically whether you're doing you know coronavirus or ebola or sepsis or cardiac care or acute kidney injury the only thing that's different is the biology that we then, you know, insert into the to the rest of the system. So the good news is we didn't have to build the whole thing again. We spent the last, you know, many years doing that. And now we have this platform that can be adapted readily to, uh, you know, a number of different uh, um, applications. And this, uh, so this is, it's You're very ready. timely. And, and yeah. here we are. I keep thinking, you know, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? I mean, could there be a lot more mutations, a lot more strains out there than you're able to test for that we know of today? Is that one of them? Um, there may be strains and there may be mutation generally. Um, you know, the, 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 the basic framework of the virus doesn't change too much, uh, and it's usually detectable. So, for instance, we we started off by looking at the SARS um, uh, virus, which happened many years ago, and SARS-CoV-1. This is SARS-CoV-2, and we actually found a lot of commonality between those two. And we, in the early days, we used uh, of our in the early days of our development, we used uh, some of the SARS-oriented reagents to begin our development because there's a very close relationship now. SARS-CoV-2 is enough different that we actually have to have different different antibodies but it's a that's a it's a new virus it's not really a mutation of the of the SARS-CoV-1 virus. And so you get the new one but you we don't know if we'll see drift yet or an yeah, we definition. We don't know. We just don't and, know. And and many times drift will be manageable within the the antibody structure that that we have but uh, you know that's serious, certainly going to be 
something that the um, you got you know, research new, scientists you put something new in it, exactly. And, this is so different. I have to say, this is part of the difference between uh, a mature engineering, uh, meaning that the engineering underneath is mature, and scientists trying to find something that they don't know where it is. They're searching mm-hmm. through the through the dark. They're swimming through the waters. Where is it? We think it's here. We're looking, looking, looking. You're like, you show it to me. I'll get it. So there's a calmness about we're just going to go down and get this. We'll figure it out. We got it. Oh, no, I I, I think that's right. And, um, you know, I think the, the, the science community has done a great job. I think I remember back early in my career I had, had read about product development and, and the concept of having having customizable standard product. So basically standard product that you can then tweak to make a customizable to a particular situation. And that's exactly what we have done here. So um, it's very exciting. Um, we think we can contribute a lot here in in terms of our societal recovery to normal or whatever new normal is. Um, and then there's a lot of other applications where this technology uh, can make a fundamental difference in 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 reducing costs of health care, uh, improving the speed of, of testing and diagnosis of health care, and thereby improving the patient experience and the patient outcome. I mean, that's really, that's really where we want to go, make the patient experience better, make the patient outcome better. And all of that will come out of, you know, sort of streamlining this this process. So the validation of the test is one thing. Your handheld device, which weighs how much? About two pounds. Two, well, that's great. Two pounds. It's already got a CE mark. So yep. Europe, Australia, Canada, all of those places yes. could be ready for it as well. Right. Once you show proof of concept. Yep. Absolutely. And I would say, by the way, the the new FDA guidelines on this are very helpful for getting this into the market very, very quickly. So um, I think that, you know, the federal government is bureaucratic. It always is. Um, and, and it is, you know, there's, I guess there's a good part of that. Um, but we've found that the FDA and BARDA have been very flexible and very responsive. I think, um, you know, from the start of our conversations with BARDA to the award of the contract was less than 30 days which is really pretty remarkable for a for a government funding entity. Thirty days ago, things looked a lot different. So they were they on did. the move. They did, yes. They did, David. Thank you so much for coming in, and we hope we look forward to hearing what happened next time we see you. All right, Moira. Well, I look uh, forward to coming back and telling you about all the success that we've had. I hope so too. I do too. Yes. <laughs> thank care. you. I appreciate it. David Ludvigson is the president and CEO of Nanomics. More information is available at nano.com. That's N-A-N-O, nano.com. It's in the nature of technology that it's ready to pivot at any time, changing how devices work for a new need, building new apps altogether, using existing apps in new and unanticipated ways. TechNation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft looks at the maker movement in this time of COVID-19. Welcome back, Daniel. Good to be back. If there's one thing Americans are good at, it's innovation. 
And it's not just what's the government going to do for us and solve our problems in this COVID age. It's like we're all really good at innovation. What's happening out there? Well, I think we're seeing a really remarkable uh, convergence of ideas, people, energy about solving for a lot of the problems that are coming up so acutely here in the setting of our COVID-19 pandemic. One of the things we're recognizing, um, sadly, from the experience we're seeing in Italy is that the intensive care units are overrun. They're out of ventilators. They're having to make very, very difficult, um, ethically challenging decisions about who gets care and rationing. And so we're already recognizing here in the United States, here in you know mid-March of 2020, we're not yet at a shortage, but given the pace of the disease, we expect to potentially have a need for a million ventilators and patients who are getting supportive care to get them through the course of a a bad COVID-19 infection. So one of the needs is more ventilators. So one thing we've seen pop up over the last week or so are the quote-unquote ultimate medical hackathon. How fast can we design and deploy an open-source ventilator? Meaning how quickly can the community come together, make a design that's open-source, meaning anyone can see the plans, and build a respirator or ventilator for folks who are having respiratory issues uh, when there's a known pending shortage. Is it that hard to build a ventilator? Well, in fact, in the past, there's been groups uh, and publications out of MIT. I'm, I'm looking at a picture here of a group at MIT that used sort of an ambulation bag, those sort of big blue or yellow bags. You might see paramedics squeezing over a mask to keep someone going while they're rolling them into an into a emergency room. They put that into a little box with a little motor that would squeeze it for you. You can imagine a little mechanical squeezer instead of a hand. It's doing that. It's got a little volume rate and... and uh, beats per minute rate, pretty simple thing. That's the kind of thing that's been built in the past. It's being looked at as an example as these sort of hackers and makers come together to learn from past examples, to improve upon that, to have something that you can send a 3D printed file across the internet and have someone print in their hospital or in their garage and put together with parts to, to build a sort of a, a poor man's ventilator um, or to inspire uh, you know new versions. So there are several examples of these prototypes that have been built in the past. Now there's a lot of energy about really making this not just a, a pet project, but something that's going to really make an impact now. I keep hearing about how we need ICUs. You can't invent an ICU overnight. I mean, here in the United States, we have you know some great hospitals. They don't have an oversupply of intensive care units. They're really sort of usually designed to be almost 80 or 90% full. So that means we don't have a lot of extra capacity. So how can we be smart and innovate and sort of hack our way to more intensive care units or more ventilators? So um, several physicians and anesthesiologists I know are now promoting, number one, we can take our operating rooms and turn them essentially into intensive care unit suites. They have an anesthesia machine that is a fancy ventilator normally giving you anesthesia as well that could be used to support patients. Um, We can uh, look at how do we take surgery centers, you know, not a hospital, but surgery centers which have essentially an operating room and an anesthesia suites. And there are many of those. Yeah, and get those ready if needed to become overflow for our intensive care units. We also have the need to um, upskill maybe a, a regular nurse to be taking care of ventilated patients, which is not something that normally all nurses or, or doctors do. How do we create better AI and, and virtual support? Several companies are building now these virtualized care pathways so we can learn from Italy and China so the physicians here and caregivers can be learning. What do you really look for? What are the right settings for that ventilator? What drugs seem to be working in real time? So those are a couple examples of now trying to hack our system quickly 
in, in fact, even ahead of time. On Facebook, anybody can join the open source COVID-19 medical supplies group, which has many, many examples of people engineering or 3D printing their own simple masks all the way to, you know, parts that might be needed uh, by a hospital. One example that just emerged recently in Italy, an Italian hospital has already saved several COVID patient lives by 3D printing valves that they needed for their CPAP-based ventilators. So they were running out of them. The, uh, the, the company that made them formally didn't have enough. So this group led by a, a company called um, Isonova literally designed and 3D printed the missing valves within, within a day, and they've been used now in, in dozens of patients. So this isn't just a theoretical idea. This is already starting to happen. And this is a societal coming together of innovation. This is new. Well, you know, the whole maker movement is not so new. Um, the idea now that any of us can become, quote unquote, makers, some people are knitters, some people are designers, some people like to 3D print. There is already uh, uh, an association called Maker Health, makerhealth.co uh, out of Boston, and one called Maker Nurse, where they've taken lessons of often, you know, nurses are kind of great MacGyvers. They figure out how to, a better way to hang the IV pole or to help someone with a disability. And then when you learn how to hack something, uh, it might be how to hold your IV in place. They can now share that and others can make that. And that can take products to scale. So it's not just something that you might have and invent in your hospital clinic become become globalized. So the hacker movement, I think, is particularly important in this you know whole endeavor, including all the way to how we're reinventing how we're going to do vaccines and drugs and clinical tests. Um, it's, it's bringing a whole bunch of people together very quickly. Quickly is the word. We have to do it quickly. We have to innovate rapidly. And we have to do it together. It's not about, oh, I just invented this. No, I want to capture the intellectual property, get venture capital, see how much money I can make. It's like, we don't have time for that. Right. Necessity is the mother of invention. We have a lot of necessity right now and not a lot of time. And I think a lot of... Um, we can learn from history and from other groups that have faced adversity and, and, and come forward. Many of the listeners will remember Apollo 13, uh, the mission to the, the third mission to go land on the moon, which on the way there, the oxygen tank blew up and we thought we might lose the astronauts. And, you know, at Mission Control and Johnson Space Center, they had to scramble their teams to try and respond to this, you know, dire emergency. And um, I think we'll close. I'm going to read a little segment um, from a post by a psychologist named Gretchen Schmelzer, GretchenSchmelzer.com, that I think encapsulates what's going on now that ties to our current situation. So here's a quote. So when the Apollo 13 oxygen tank failed and the lunar module was in danger of not returning to Earth, Gene Krantz, the lead flight director, overheard people saying that this could be the worst disaster NASA had ever experienced, to which he is rumored to have responded, with all due respect, I believe this is going to be our finest hour. So imagine if we can make our response to this crisis our finest hour. Imagine if a year or two from now, we looked back on this and told stories of how we came together as a team in our community, in our state, in our nation, and across the world. Your contribution to the finest hour may seem small, invisible, inconsequential, but every small act of not doing what you were going to do and doing an act of kindness or support will add up exponentially. These acts can and will save lives. The Apollo 13 crew made it their finest hour by letting go of the word I and embracing the word we. And that's the task required of us all. It can only be our finest hour if we work together together. You are all on the team, and we need all of you to shine in whatever way you can. 
So don't just go home and self-isolate. Start thinking. <laughs> start thinking. Start collaborating. There's so many people coming together on Zoom uh, and virtual meetings and creating these teams and task forces and and becoming this you know amazing we, not I, folks who might have been competitors in the past, listening of regulations when they make sense around privacy and telehealth, as we talked about. Um, you know, this is the the. The, the necessity of now. And, and my hope is as we move into the future past this crisis, the lessons and the teams and the innovations that come from this will uh, really help uh, the planet move forward on many levels. Terrific. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Thanks, See you next week. Cheers. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. While the benefits of IV drugs for many medical conditions are welcome, it does require time to administer the drug, as well as time spent in an infusion center. Still, how you deliver a drug is technology, and that opens the door for better, faster, and cheaper. In this case, the targets are treatments for breast cancer in women and multiple myeloma. Helen Chorley is the CEO of Halozyme. Well, Helen, welcome back to Tech Nation. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to talk about two different areas today uh, in terms of improvements to patient care uh, from the patient's perspective that I know you're working on among your many projects there. Uh, First is breast cancer in women. Tell us about that. What is a woman's current experience and how are you working for that to change? Over the last several years, we've seen uh, major advances in the care of breast cancer. One of the most important drugs is a drug called Herceptin. Uh, That is given into the vein in an injection that can take up to 90 minutes. Um, With our technology, which is called Enhance, we're able to convert that drug. And instead of it having to go into the veins um, in an injection taking 90 minutes, it can be given in a simple 5 to 10 minute injection underneath the skin. Um, This is with um, Roche that we've been developing this and it recently got FDA approval. And Roche hasn't stopped there. Um, They have an indication for patients with early breast cancer combining two drugs, Progetta and Herceptin, for breast cancer patients. Um, Today, patients receive those sequentially, which can take up to two and a half hours. Now, we're talking about often young, vibrant people who are trying to get back to their normal lives. And so in clinical testing now, we have a, using our Enhanced technology, a delivery approach, which is again just five minutes underneath the skin to receive these two important medicines. And we expect to have data on that um, sometime next year. And we'll see if that will support filing with the FDA and support approval. These infusion drugs, we frequently call them IV drugs. They have to go, they have to, they have to go into a vein, right? They have to, but and when you say, under the skin, or or some people say subcutaneously, you're just poking just under the skin? That's correct. Um, What the nurse will do is put a small needle underneath the skin and just sit there and over five minutes inject the volume. And our enhanced technology um, allows the um, fluid to spread underneath the skin, uh, be exposed to the blood and lymphatic system, and that's how it gets absorbed. Um, That's the special thing about our enhanced technology, which basically breaks down and targets something under the skin called hyaluronin. Um, It's a novel approach, and it really is able to bring this potential for reduced treatment burden for patients. Obviously, with these IV drugs and in the time that it takes, you go into what's called an infusion center or a special area in the hospital to get this done. 
will that still be the case with these under-the-skin treatments? It's a great question. Today, uh, these under-the-skin treatments are still given uh, in the doctor's office or in an infusion centre. Over time, many of our partners are considering developing devices which would allow the patient to be able to do it on their own at at home. So that won't be suitable for all drugs, but it will be suitable for many. So certainly a way in the future. And again, all of this is really trying to make the burden of receiving treatment for very serious diseases easier and easier for the patients and uh, we often forget the caregivers but the caregivers also have a burden of taking people to the hospital waiting for them and so uh, we see this as being the future of where cancer care and other care is going. Now let's talk about multiple myeloma. What's What happens there? Yes, in multiple myeloma recently uh, a drug from Janssen which is called daratumumab or Darzalex uh, was approved. Um, it has got tremendous um, importance for patients with multiple myeloma improving survival in many of the settings. But because of the nature of the drug, it has to be given in a slow intravenous injection again. Um, for some patients that can take up to 8, 10, 12 hours. Um, so you can imagine that for these patients this is a life-saving drug. It's very important they receive the therapy on time, but they have to commit a lot of their time. Uh, We have just completed a clinical study in collaboration with Janssen where we've taken that amazing drug and we've combined it with our enhanced technology. And uh, just at ASCO, data was presenting, showing the um, efficacy and safety data in a single, simple five-minute subcutaneous injection of this. So imagine... Wait a minute, you went for how many hours down Often four to six. That's what people often quote is the average down to in this study, just giving it in five minutes. Now, this study still has to be reviewed by the FDA, but certainly the data showing the um, efficacy appeared very promising, as did the tolerability profile. So um, Janssen will now move forward to submit that to the Food and Drug Administration. And this could be available sometime in 2020 as another option for patients. Um, And for multiple myeloma patients who uh, have great survival often, uh, this, I think, will be a very important additional treatment choice for them. Well, you know, I always say uh, we think about science in terms of driving uh, medicine forward, medical treatments forward. And I said, well, you can have all the science you want, but it has to be embodied in a technology to be delivered to a patient. And of course, we know, for instance, in computers and consumer electronics, once you get to technology, it's better, faster, cheaper. It's almost like this is an example of better, faster, cheaper in the delivery of these drugs. That's what we hear from patients. It's what we hear from from caregivers. Um, For some patients, this is just going to mean they can uh, get back to their lives. And with some of our other drugs, we've heard that patients can go in and receive it in their lunch hour so they don't have to take time off work. And I think that's what it's all about when you're recovering from a serious disease. Um, Many people want to not feel as though they are tied to the memory of what the treatment um, they went through before. And so we're very excited to see patients graduate to and also be able to receive these subcutaneous therapies. Well, Helen, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back, see us, keep us updated. Uh, Absolutely. Thanks so much. Helen Torley is the CEO of Halozyme. More information is available at halozyme.com. That's halo, H-A-L-O, zyme, Z-Y-M-E, halozyme.com. For Tech Nation and the special edition of Biotech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.
Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and Internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and Biotechnation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.